Good evening, everybody. Good evening, virtual audience. Good evening, Douglas. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> it is. I was just saying that we had done an event already today up in Cave Creek, and one of the things we talked about was your first two books that we worked on together, Cities of Gold and then Talking to the Ground. That's right, yeah. That's uh, the Cities of Gold. That was about 30 Thirty years ago, or more. Well, we, we, the stores. I've been here since 1989. So, when did Cities of Gold publish? That published in 1992. Okay, so we've been together since 1992. I've barely been married longer than I've spent time with Bill, <laughs> with Doug. Um, so, Cities of Gold. For those who haven't read it, tell them how it goes. Well, it's a it's an Arizona story. A friend of mine and I. Uh, this is when I was 33 years old. I got on horses, and we rode a thousand miles following Coronado's uh, route through Arizona and New Mexico, um, packing our supplies and laying down fences, not following roads or trails. And uh, we we just about killed ourselves in the process because we didn't know a damn thing about riding our horses. <laughs> I mean, um, but we learned, and we didn't die, and we didn't hurt any horses. So, thank God. Here it is. Yeah, that's it. But as yeah. we were driving up to Carefree and Cave Creek, up Scottsdale Road, you were telling a story about the Jumping Joya. Oh, yeah. the um, Well, you know, we, we rode, uh, we crossed the Salt River um, at Horseshoe Bend. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's uh, um, north of Globe. North of Globe. Yes, north of Globe, I think. And... Um, I mean, there's, you know, the big, beautiful saguaro cactuses and this jumping choya everywhere. And, you know, the horses would ride through that stuff and they'd be swishing their tails and they'd get a piece of that jumping choya on their tail. And then they'd swish it up and hit themselves in the, in the, in the flank with this piece of cactus. And then you have kind of a short rodeo. And then uh, you had to get off the horse and then you had to get the cactus off the horse. And, you know... We, you take a stick and try to flick it off like this as fast as possible, but sometimes it wouldn't work and it sort of roll down the horse and stick again. And meanwhile, of course, the horse is very unhappy and jumping and kicking and, and you're out in the middle of the wilderness and sometimes you're on a really steep trail or not on any trail and you're, oh God. And I remember at one point, Walter's, one of Walter's horses um, slammed into the side of a saguaro cactus you know, it, it, it lost its balance, and, and in recovering itself, it hit the cactus. And um, we kept going. Um, we pulled out the spines, or we thought we did. We kept going. And we eventually ended up in Young, Arizona. Do you know where Young is? The site of the Pleasant Valley War? Do any of you know that? No. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. But uh, and Walter's horse had developed... A big, what what the cowboys call a water bag, is a huge swelling of fluid on on the horse. So we rode into Young, which is this old cow town. I don't know today. Maybe it's got vacation homes, but back then it was just a bunch of cowboys. And there was this old guy named Tobe Hot, and he he said, "We're gonna have to do something about that water bag." And uh, Walter said, "What?" He said. Gonna have to operate. And Walter said, well, oh my God, really? Where's the vet? Ain't no vet around here. Well, what's, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna do it. I was like, uh, what exactly are you gonna do? He said, you'll see. <laughs> and he took that horse uh, and snubbed her to a you know, snubbing post. And then he tied up the front leg and wrapped a rope around it like this. And Walter said, why are you doing that? And he said, so she can't kick with her back leg. So she can't kick my head off with her back leg because she has the front leg tied up. She doesn't, she doesn't want to lift either one of her back legs to kick because then she'll fall over. Very clever guy. So then he got out this bottle of uh, rubbing alcohol and he swabbed down the area that he was going to operate. And we were like really nervous at this point. And, and then he... Uh, he called over his son, Carol, and Carol came over with a whetstone. He took out his penknife, and he sharpened it on the whetstone. 
oh my God, he sharpened it for a long time and tested it and sharpened it again. He says, now we're ready for the operation. Stand back. And he went up to the horse and he just went like this. And that was it. That was the operation. He stabbed the horse and made a big slit in it. And all this bloody fluid poured out from the water bag. And then he sniffed and he said, smells fresh. It means it's not infected. That's good. <laughs> oh, my God. That horse was really, I mean, that horse was just absolutely freaked out when that happened. Um, but then he said to Walter, he said, you got to, you got to keep this flowing. You can't let the wound heal up until all the fluid goes out. You're going to, every morning and every night, you're going to have to work that water bag and stick your finger into the wound and make sure it's open and, and, and milk out the fluid. And you got to be careful because that horse is going to kick your head off. So Walter, and Walter had to do that and uh, he did it and the horse survived and it was fine. But that was that, that saguaro cactus when she slammed into it. That, well, it probably wasn't the first horse that ran into a cactus or he wouldn't have known how to do all that. So, you know, I imagine that it was pretty rough and ready homemade veterinary medicine for, you know, lots of places, lots of people. Yeah, they, they you know, they these old ranchers and cowboys, they do their own vet work because they can't afford to pay for a vet. You know, they, they do it themselves. So proving that Doug learned absolutely nothing from Cities of Gold, he wrote a second book <laughs> in which he and his uh, now wife, lovely Christine, um, rode around um, through 400 miles through Navajo country. So you were in northern Arizona, probably southern Utah? Yeah, southern Utah, mostly in northern Arizona and then a little bit in New Mexico. And I love this book, and it went out of print, and his publisher was reluctant to reprint it and also would not give back the rights so somebody else could reprint it, which is one of those things that publishers do. So Doug said to me, what are we going to do? And I said, watch this. So I wrote to the publisher. Now we have this beautiful book, right? I wrote to the publisher and said, since you aren't going to give Doug back the rights, then it would be a really good idea to reprint it. And they said, well, you know, sales won't be all that great. And I said, well, I'll send you a purchase order. So they ordered a reprint and I sent them the purchase order and it was for twice as many books as they had reprinted. So I know, I just love that. They could not believe, you know, that that was going to happen to an old paper bag. But anyway, we have sold thousands of copies of Talking to the Ground and if you've never read it and it is in this handy paperback, I really recommend it and it's a great gift for um, anyone who is maybe not necessarily a novel reader but, you know, would enjoy travel or nonfiction and so forth. And they did a nice job with it, didn't they, when they, they finally they, got into it? They did. Thanks to you. I think they thought, well, we don't care about Preston, but we better do what Barbara says. <laughs> no, what they wanted was the 2000 book purchase order. That was, you know, enough um, to make it work out. Anyway, um, we are now arrived at the lost tomb, which is, Doug can tell you more than I, because it's his book, but you did notice that you got and there'll be a little mention of it. You did notice that you got an image card inside it, right? So Lost Tomb, what, what um, inspired you to do a collection here of your pieces for The New Yorker and other um, publications? Well, it was uh, um, actually, uh, do you know Otto Penzler? Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Many people think I opened the bookstore so I didn't have to shop with Otto anymore. Hello, Otto. <laughs> no, he's, he runs a very good bookstore in New York City. Yeah, That's he, even older than the Poison Pit. Yes, and um, he's a, quite a character. Yes. Very interesting guy. And he came to me and he said, you know, I've got a publishing company called Mysterious Press. And I'd like to publish all your your all these wonderful stories you've written for the New Yorker I'd like to and other magazines I'd like to republish yeah. them in a book about murders you know, all the murder stories all the cannibalism all these dark stories right. and um, I said well I have to that that's a great idea but I have to um, check with my publisher first because they have a, a contractual right so I went to my publisher and they said hell yes we'll publish that book no one else is going to do it. So, unfortunately, Otto didn't, um, you know. I know. It's know. a sad one. It was his idea. And I he's know. a noted anthologizer. Otto actually is one of the best um, people 
in publishing to collect um, short fiction, nonfiction, whatever. He's constantly editing all kinds of, you know, yeah, anthologies, I, a fancy word for a collection of stories. But but I did dedicate the book to him. Yes, you did. It was I, very nice. Yes. So, but uh, but but actually, as soon as he broached the idea, I thought that's a great idea because. You know, I've always been attracted to mysteries, really, really deep, dark mysteries, uh, real, real mysteries. And so I've written about these, and I didn't really realize how consistently my stories dealt with mysteries that had never been solved. And so there are a lot of the stories in here have never been solved. And some of them are really, really interesting. And so that's why... Uh, I, so it, it sort of became a theme of this, you know, burials, bones, murders, cannibalism, um, crime, uh, mass death. These are the, the subjects of these nonfiction pieces. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that many of my fiction books with Lincoln originated with these stories. Like, for example, Riptide. Riptide was uh, originated with the Oak Island uh, mystery, the treasure. Is that the one where you built the cofferdam? Yes, that's right. And Do you even know what a cofferdam is? I mean, one of the things I love about reading Doug is that I learned stuff that I would never have run across. Denny, do you know what a cofferdam is? If you're going to be searching for treasure in the ocean, how are you going to do that? Yeah, you, well, you if, if it's shallow enough, you can build a dam to keep the water back and then pump the water out, and then you can be on relatively dry ground. Right, you create a hole in the ocean, essentially. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And and they also do this when they build bridges and things like that. It's an engineering feat um, or a technique. So, but yeah, the, so so the riptide was, came straight out of, actually that was, the fourth book that Lincoln and I wrote, and we'd written three books, and we Lincoln was saying, we've got to write a really great treasure story, but I wish there was a treasure story. And, oh, Doug, you wrote a, about the, the, the Oak Island treasure. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. That's, no, I don't know. Oh, and Lincoln talked me into it. And so that, that became, uh, so, so the original story is in here about the Oak Island treasure. And there's the Monster of Florence. That's right, the Monster of Florence. The original piece about the Monster of Florence is in here. The um, How many of you have read Dead Mountain? Well, that was based on a true story uh, called the Dyatlov Pass Incident, which is in here as well. And that is a really, really bizarre uh, story about the death of nine cross-country skiers in 1959 in the old Soviet Union in the Ural Mountains. And they died under the most absolutely bizarre circumstances, all very, very meticulously documented. And all these documents came out after the Soviet Union collapsed. And it's just mind boggling. So. Well, but go further, because actually Dead Mountain is inspired by this story. Doug has taken it and set it in New Mexico and um, come up with a solution in Dead Mountain that um, I think works really well. Um, it is not necessarily the solution to what happened to the people, the skiers of the Soviet Union. But um, anyway, and so we have put, because we have some signed copies left, we put it on sale. It comes with a nifty card for only $20. So it makes a neat package because you can read this book and read the original story, the Russian story, and then you can take the novel home. Um, and if you like New Mexico, it's a beautiful New Mexico story. And it starts in the mountains kind of southeast of Albuquerque, and it goes all along. If you've driven up from Albuquerque to Santa Fe, it goes along that whole mountain range there. But it's kind of a love story to New Mexico, among other things. It is, but it also picks up on some of the interesting things. The uh, the um, the largest uh, de a depot of nuclear weapons in the world are in those mountains, mm -hmm. deep in those mountains. And that is part of the story. I don't want to... No, but go spoilers, back and but... go back and tell the story of the or set the scene for the Russian story. Yes, all right. All right, so here's here's the Russian mystery, all right? Nine very experienced mountaineers 
are embark on a cross-country ski trip across the Ural Mountains uh, from Russia into Siberia because the mountains, that mountain chain separates Siberia from Asia from, from Europe and Siberia from Russia. Uh, when they didn't return, a search parties went out. They found the tent high on a mountain slope above the tree line, uh, and inside the tent, everything was normal. Their sleeping bags were laid out. There was food laid out as if they were in the middle of a meal. Uh, their boots were there. Their clothing was there. Everything was nicely laid out. And the side of the tent had been slashed open. Now, there's a door to this tent, but it looked like they had gone out the side of the tent. And so the question was, well, what, why did they do that? Then they found their footprints in the snow, mostly barefoot, some with just socks on, and most of their clothes were left in the tent. <clears throat> and it was 25 below. And this, this occurred at night with the wind blowing 60 miles an hour and 25 below zero temperatures. So these, very, these nine experienced mountaineers, something happened that caused them to slash the side of the tent and run out into the cold. And this is just the beginning of what they found. They followed these footprints down to the tree line where they found that they made a fire. And next to the fire were two dead, frozen bodies. Um, their clothes were not wearing any clothes except for underwear. Um, and on the tree above, they found human skin on the, on the bark. So they started looking more, searching. They found three frozen, uh, three frozen hikers on the slope leading between the tent and this fire. But they couldn't find the four others. Uh, this was in February. So finally in May, they found the four others when the snow began to melt. Now the snow was very deep, and they found them under 15 feet of snow. Um, but what had happened was these Mansi hunters, who were like the local indigenous people, had, had dogs that smelled something. And so they, so they went... And they found the four bodies face down in a stream bed under the snow with horrible injuries. Um, one of them's head was crushed, violently crushed. Uh, two of them had their chest completely crushed, so one so violent that the bones went into the heart. And uh, several, several were missing their eyes, and one was two were missing their tongues. And, uh, and then, for some reason that nobody understands, they took the clothing from these people, the, the little clothing they had on, and tested it and found that it was radioactive. With radioactivity that could only come from either a nuclear weapon or a nuclear power plant. Now, there isn't a nuclear power plant for 500 or 1,000 miles. So that's the mystery. What happened? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. Um, the, the, the article goes into the whole thing. I mean, they, really, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to explain, and there really isn't an answer yet. Um, uh, there's still tremendous debate about it. Many books have been written and so forth. But. So in Dead Mountain, there is a group of people found in sort of similar circumstances. And in case you think that this is one of the Pendergast supernatural kinds of it actually has a sensible ending, which I loved. Um, so it's really a terrific book. If you're not a reader of Doug's fiction, it's a great place to start. It's the fourth in the Nora Kelly series, but it doesn't matter. It reads perfectly well by itself, right? Yeah, and you know, I have to tell you that I was, my wife said to me, you know, Doug, this is I, this is one of the best books that you and Lincoln have ever written. And I was really impressed because she's very honest with me because she tells me what, what book she doesn't like either. I'm not going to tell you which ones they are, <laughs> but some of them, she says, Oh, it's just, Oh my God, the violence and the terror. I can't stand it. I, I can almost not bear to read some of your books, but she loved this one. And then I went to Goodreads and I saw it had one of the highest ratings of of any of the books that I've written, so I was very happy to see Well, that. I agree with Christine. It's one yeah. of my very favorite books that you have written. Well, maybe it's because it's close to the bone. You know, it's not, we don't have supernatural elements. Right. There aren't the outlandish elements that sometimes creep into our books. Well, I think, again, that's true, and I like that, but I also think I love it because it is 
such a love story of New Mexico, you know, which is a place that I find absolutely enchanting. It is called the Land of Enchantment, so it sort of works out that way. Anyway, moving on, um, let's talk about the Monster of Florence, and then we should get to the reason this book is called The Lost Tomb. Okay. All right. Well, the Monster of Florence, the, the story in here is about a serial killer who murdered young lovers in the Tuscan Hills in out, outside of Florence, Italy. And the way I discovered this was I moved to Florence with my family to write a murder mystery. And I found a journalist who covered uh, murders for the local paper. And I, I sat down with him for, with coffee and I asked him, well, what do the cops do in Italy when they find a dead body? Because that's, if you're going to write a murder mystery, you got to know, right? So he told me all about what they do. And then I asked him, well, what, what kind of stories have you covered? And he said, well, I, of course, I've, I've covered the Monster of Florence. And I said, the Monster of Florence? I've never heard of that. He said, oh, of course you've heard of that. It's, I said, no, I've never heard of it. Well, it turns out that the Monster of Florence, which was a very, very famous story in Italy, had never reached the English language. I Googled it in English. Seven hits, none of which were even remotely, you know, informative. So... <clears throat> I abandoned the novel, and I teamed up with Mario Spezzi, this Italian journalist, to write a book about this serial killer. It's the longest and most expensive criminal case in Italian history, modern Italian history. Over 100,000 men had been investigated, and it is still unsolved. But, so Mario, at a certain point, he confided in me, and he said, you know, I think I know who the monster of Florence is. I think I've identified him. And I said, well, have you gone to talk to him? He said, hell no. Are you kidding? He said, I live in the monster's territory with my daughter. Um, there's no way I'm going to go talk to him. Well, I managed to talk Mario into going to talk to him. And, uh, oh, my God, that was one of the worst, most frightening interviews of my life <clears throat> as a journalist. Um, we decided that not to warn him we were coming. We decided to just show up at his apartment at quarter to 10 at night when we knew he'd be there. And we did. And there he was. And he let us in. And Mario was so frightened. He used a fake name. He used the name Marco Tietzi. So we pressed the buzzer, and Mario said, uh, it's uh, Marco Tietzi, uh, I'm a journalist, you don't know me, and, um, and I'm with an American journalist, Douglas Preston, and we want to talk to you about the Monster of Florence case, because this guy was peripherally, apparently, involved in the case. So he buzzed us in. As soon as we walked in to his apartment, he looked at Mario, and he said, wait, wait, I must have misheard your name. You're Mario Spezzi. You're the man who wrote all those articles about the monster of Florence. I've read everything you've written. It's like, okay. So then Mario took out his tape recorder and said, can I record you? And he said, no, my voice is too beautiful and too velvety to go into that little box of yours. But you may take notes. And he was, you know, I had always thought, a serial killer was really creepy and gross. Actually, and weird. Many of them are super charming. If you oh. read Ann Rule's book about Ted Bundy, I mean, you know, it turned out that they have a, a whole very charming persona. Well, that's exactly what this guy was like. Yeah. Antonio Vinci, he was charming. A sit down, please have a glass of Mirtillo, which is this little Sardinian liqueur. He was from Sardinia originally. You know, how can I, smiles, very handsome with this kind of working class charm, kind of Robert De Niro sort of persona. So we sat down and Mario started asking him questions. I was just sitting there listening. And he started asking him questions that became more and more pointed. And it was pretty clear about halfway through the interview that we thought he was the monster of Florence. Because I remember Mario saying, well, it's funny, um, Antonio, you know, you lived here. He took out a map. You lived here, and there was a monster killing when you lived here. 
And then you moved over here, and there was a monster killing near that. And then you went away for seven years to Lecco, and there were no monster killings. But three months after you came back, there was another monster killing. And so, and, but this guy never stopped smiling, never stopped his arrogant, you know, kind of self-confident persona. And finally, at the end, Mario looked at him and said, are you the monster of Florence? Now, his response can't be repeated in, in uh, public. <laughs> You're going to have to read the book. <laughs> um, but, uh, but as we were leaving, he leaned over Mario and he, and he lowered his voice to a whisper, even though he was still smiling. And then he switched from formal to informal Italian, like he was suddenly talking to a child. And he said, Mario, I may be smiling, but I want you to remember, I am a person who never kids around. You know, I don't, I don't mess around. Just, just remember that. Well, unfortunately, the story doesn't have a happy ending for Mario. He's not actually killed by the monster of Florence, but rather he is harassed to death by the Italian police who, um, who don't want to accept his theories and who want to cover up their own completely corrupt investigation. So the poor man eventually dies, doesn't he? He's just worn out with the whole thing. You were banned from Italy. Yes, it was really, it's kind of amusing, actually. It seems funny now, although it wasn't funny when it happened. But I was walking through the streets of Florence, getting my wife coffee to bring up, and my cell phone rang, and this voice, very serious a vicious voice speaking Italian said, is this Mr. Preston? And I said, yes. The voice said, this is the police. We are coming to get you. Where are you? And I was like, get out of here. No, Mr. Preston, this is the police. Um, we are coming to get you now. And if you don't tell us where you are and we have to find you, that would not be good. Not good at all. I was like, oh, my God. And they did. They came and they got me. They hauled me in for this interrogation with five cops uh, in Italian, no lawyer present, no translator. And they had tapped our cell phones. And they're playing back conversations that I'd had with Mario on my cell phone. And it was even clearer in their wiretaps than the original call was, you know. And they, and they, and they, they kept saying, and what do you mean here when you say you're going for a walk? What are you talking about? What is this code for? And I was like, uh, it's not code. Don't lie to us, Mr. Preston. You know, because the mafia speak in code all the time on the phone. That's how they, oh, my God. I, I thought, and then he said, they, they demanded that if I didn't confess to being an accessory to murder and uh perjury and obstruction of justice and all these really terrible felonies that would have put me in jail in Italy for 30 or 40 years. Um, if you don't confess right here, right now, we're going to indict you for these crimes. And I said, look, I can't confess to crimes I did not commit. And so, you know, in Italy, they're very um, demonstrative. They, they love show. So the, the, the prosecutor, the chief questioner, pulls this gigantic tome off his shelf and thumps it on the desk and opens it up and turns the pages and then starts starts reading out the charges against me the, the the article this article that article this and meanwhile they're writing all this down oh my god well fortunately you didn't actually sign the confession you had some very good advice about you know don't don't sign anything in italian because you won't know what it says yeah they well they they gave me a piece of paper and they said um sign this this is a this was a four or five hour interrogation and they'd reduced it to two pages. And Mario had told me when I, when, when he learned that I was going to be interrogated because I called him and I, he said, don't sign that piece of paper. Re, you can write it and rewrite it as many times as you want. Don't sign it the first time. So I read it and it was like a confession of, it was, I was confessing and I said, this is all wrong. And they said, well, you have the legal right to correct it. So I rewrote in my really poor Italian, rewrote it. And they typed it. They put it back in the computer. They typed it out again. 
And then I read it again, and it still wasn't right, so I rewrote it again. And by this time, they were really getting mad. But Mario had said, you can rewrite that as many times as you want. That's your legal right. So I did that, and that left them very dissatisfied. And then I said, can I take a copy of this? No, this is under seal. It's like, my God. And then I had to hire a lawyer. It cost me 6,000 euros. Just then they did indict me after I left Italy. Oh, the, the prosecutor said, we will lift these indictments to allow you to leave Italy, but they will be reinstated. And then they did indict me. Um, and I couldn't go back to Italy. Is it still in force? No, I hired a lawyer. I spent 6,000 euros just to find out what the indictments were. They arrested Mario Spezzi. They threw him in jail for being the monster of Florence himself. And I was a person who had knowledge of his crimes, which mean, meant that I was an accessory to murder after the fact. And, um, but there was an, well, the whole story is in here, but there was an international up, out, outrage against this, throwing this journalist in prison and the corruption of the Italian authorities came out. And, uh, and that was, and so they, they dropped the charges against me and against Mario. So. Which didn't help Mario a whole lot. Now, this, this story was sold to George Clooney to make a movie. And unfortunately, various things interfered. And now he's probably too old to actually star in the movie. So, but it's yeah. now got a new life, right? That's right. Yeah, Apple is making a television series out of it. So, um, well, they say they are. They claim that they're definitely going to do it. They've got a director. They've got um, a script. They've got everything. I'll believe it when I get the check. That's all I can say because I hear so much, so much hot air from Hollywood about what they're going to do that they never do. Well, that's true. But the writer's strike and the actor's strike really threw everything back. So it's kind of hard to know, you know, what, what's going to come out. And they're revamping all the streaming things. Have you noticed that you now have to watch ads or you have to pay a whole lot more money to watch stuff without ads? So there are criminals at work, in my view, <laughs> at Hollywood. That's right. No kidding. But anyway, let's get to The Lost Tomb because then you might want to explain what these images are that are on the card. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, I'm so happy that, that these photographs were taken. Um, and this is the first time they've been printed. This is going to be very valuable someday, these, 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 these cards. Uh, but it, it tells the story in the back. The story that I write in the back is not in the book. Okay, I did not put that in the book. This is just for you all. It only comes with the, the Poison Pen edition. But so here's the story. In 1820, an explorer in Egypt in the Valley of the Kings found the doorway to a tomb. And he went in with a candle and he looked around and the doorway, there was only one little room and then there was, there was nothing else. So he left. He actually wrote on the ceiling of the tomb with the can't smoke of the candle, his name. All right. Oh, a graffiti artist. He was a graffiti artist. Then in 1920, when King Tut's tomb was discovered, it was discovered right next to this doorway. They, saw, they thought it was such a useless, uninteresting tomb that they dumped all the, the debris that they, you know, when they were digging out King Tut's tomb, they just dumped it on this doorway and completely covered it up. And everyone forgot that it was there, completely forgotten. So then there was an American archaeologist who was teaching at the American University in Cairo who was doing some survey work in the, in the Valley of the Kings and was doing some test pits, you know. And all of a sudden, he came across this doorway. And he thought, this is crazy. There's no, not supposed to be a tomb here. And so he, he had a flashlight, or he got his hands on a flashlight, and he crawled in after clearing the debris away. He crawled in, and he came into this little tiny room, and he saw on the ceiling the smoked name of this guy. And he said, oh, yeah, that, that, that's a such-and-such such explorer British explorer in the 1820 who did that. And uh, yes, you know, there was, he knew enough to know there's a historical record that this guy did find a tomb somewhere that was very uh, uh, small and unimportant and had been robbed. So he's looking around with this flashlight and he sees what he thinks is the lintel of a doorway at the far end of this room. 
And he said, wait a minute, that wasn't, that shouldn't be there. So he went over there and he started pulling away the rubble because the ceilings had caved in. It was a really dangerous tomb because there was, there was a lot of cave-ins. Pulled away the rubble and he saw that there was a space back there. So he, he wedged himself into it and he shined his flashlight out and here was a corridor a hundred feet long going deep into the mountain and at the end of the corridor was a gigantic larger than life statue of the of Osiris the god of the underworld and on either side were dozens of doorways to burial chambers and and you know so he went back and he saw that there was another transverse corridor that was another hundred feet with dozens and dozens of doorways. It's the largest tomb in the Valley of the Kings and maybe the largest underground tomb in Egypt. Incredible discovery. So I immediately, hearing about this, got on an airplane, flew to Egypt to, to write about it, to be part of this discovery. And uh, the, at the time he, I, I arrived... They had found 99 rooms. Most of them were still blocked by debris. You couldn't get into them because of cave-ins and stuff. So <clears throat> at a, and he'd only been in maybe 20 of these rooms. So I said, do you think it would be possible for me to achieve my childhood dream of being the first person in an Egyptian burial chamber in 3,000 years? And he said, no, no, you can't do that. I said, please please. Oh, all right. <laughs> so they, uh, he, we went to the very back of the tomb and he picked this little doorway that didn't look important at all. It was like the smallest doorway in the tomb. And he had the workmen clear out a hole just below the top of the doorway. And I said, well, how am I going to get in there? And he said, oh, they're going to, I said, where's the ladder? They said, oh, we don't need a ladder. And the workmen picked me up and shoved me in head first. And I fell into this burial chamber. And you, these, these are pictures that show what it was like inside the chamber and everything. And so, and then they put a light bulb in on a cord with a cage. So, so then he says, his name is Kent Weeks. Kent says, um, what do you see? And I said, Wonderful things everywhere, everywhere, the glint of gold. And there's a sign. He said, bullshit, that's, you're quoting Howard Carter. You don't see anything. That, no, no, you're pulling my leg. And I said, yes, I am. The, the room is empty. It was robbed, you know, like all the other rooms in antiquity. So when, when I came back out, he said, boy, did you give me a bad moment. <laughs> I thought maybe as an archaeologist I'd just given away the greatest discovery since King Tut's tomb to some schmuck of a journalist. <laughs> so, so what was the tomb? Oh, the tomb was, this is very interesting, the greatest pharaoh, Ramses II, or also called Ramses the Great, uh, lived to be 91 years old, and he had over 50 sons. And most of them predeceased him because he lived to be so old. So he built this gigantic tomb for his sons. And they found in the tomb, they found um, Amen Herkepeshef, who was the first son of Ramses the Great by Queen Nefer Nefertari. Nefertari. And they found canopic jars with his mummified organs in them and found all kinds of really interesting... The gold and everything had been stolen, but the thieves didn't take that stuff because that wasn't worth anything. So they found all kinds of really... And now the tomb is now 120 rooms, and they're still excavating. He also built the best tomb in the Valley of the Queens for his favorite wife, which is Queen Nefertari, which is really fabulous to go and visit. It's very large, and the because it wasn't discovered for a long time, um, the paintings are beautiful because they haven't been, they haven't had a chance to deteriorate from too many tourists. You know, every time we go in and breathe in a place like that, you know, it begins to spoil things. Um, I've been in it, uh, contributing my share to despoiling yeah. it. Um, and it's marvelous. Also, um, the great temple at Abu Simbel is actually Ramesses II. The statue's out 
and you know the exterior and so forth. He was a remarkable man. Yes. And he also had the worst teeth ever because I've seen his mummy and he suffered from impacted wisdom teeth. And I keep thinking about what it would be like to live to be 91 with terrible teeth. Huh. I know. Yeah. He, yeah. He, the, the, his mummy is in the Cairo Museum. And, yeah. But he, he was also the Ozymandias in that Shelley's poem, mm-hmm. um, you know, look on my works, you mighty in despair. That was Ozymandias is an, another word name for Ramses. Right. So. And there's some thought that, um, that because King Tut died so suddenly and so young, they hadn't had time to start building him a tomb. So there's a lot of thought that because it's a little tiny. If you go there, it's not it's not any bigger than this little part of the bookstore. Um, and so there's a lot of thought that maybe what they did was they snatched a a room from another tomb that was in construction and decided to put Tut there. So there's a real question about whether there is, in fact, a bigger tomb behind King Tut's tomb, but they don't want to smash through the wall and ruin the, you know, ruin the art and so forth to figure it out. So... Um, I don't know, you know, LIDAR has come so far, but there are other kinds of x-ray techniques and all eventually I think they'll try to figure out whether there is anything there. I know, that that would be fascinating. That that would be really interesting because, of course, King Tut's tomb was the only tomb found in the Valley of the Kings that hadn't been robbed. Yeah. And it was the most minor pharaoh and you look at what came out of that tomb. Can you right. imagine? And it's a little bitty tomb. I mean, yeah. it was truly crammed right to the, you know, absolute. They've left the paintings on the wall and the sarcophagus. Any of you been there? Um, right. It's the sarcophagus, isn't it? I mean, it's the, the other stuff went to the um, museum in Cairo, which is now going to, because of the new Egyptian museum that's going to be built out by the pyramids, they haven't figured yeah. out. I spent an entire day in the museum in Cairo. The lighting is so bad. Nobody dusted it for probably decades. Um, and <laughs> yes. there's no security at all. So they really did need to build a, uh, a new museum for, you know, yeah. all this wonderful stuff. Um, and it still hasn't opened as far as I know, but I'm hoping it will. And then I'd like to go back. Yeah, yeah, that would be very interesting. Right. That's an incredible museum. So there are other stories. Uh, how many? Nine in all? Thirteen. Oh, thirteen. thirteen. Oh, lucky thirteen, <laughs> right? Um, so there are other stories in the book, and um, it's really it's a fascinating read. Any of you have questions that you would like to ask, Doug? Yes. Yeah, well, the Brittany and Lost City of the Monkey God, uh, you're talking about the knife that's towards the end. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering, you know, since there's so little research at the time you were writing that, mm-hmm. so little research about that in this country, since you've wrote, written that, has there been development like, you know, with COVID and the pandemic and everything? Is that is that fueled more science towards this as a, as a serious threat or is it kind of waned? Well, no, they, they're at the NIH is really at the cutting edge of research on that disease. And they're trying to find a vaccine or some some way to, um, you know, it's a, it's not a virus and it's not a bacteria. It's a parasite. It's like malaria. So they have to, it's hard to find a vaccine that will combat it. But they're trying to do that. They're also trying to figure out new medicines, new drugs to treat it because the drugs they have now are really awful. I mean, it's just, it's like chemotherapy. But they do have a new drug that I didn't take um, called uh, miltefazine. And it's very expensive. It's $20,000 for the, to take it. Um, but um, it apparently uh, works. So. so it's caused by sand flies. And when you went to the, the reason that the Lost City, the monkey god, has not really been excavated is that there's no easy access to it. But unfortunately, if you go there, you can't really avoid the sand flies. And so, you know, you're likely to get sick. So they found the, they found the city, but there hasn't been a lot of work done on it. Yeah, the, the disease is sort of protects the city. Right. Um, and maybe it's a good thing. Um, you know, to to keep people out. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's another question. <laughs> it's also on the drug route, um, which is a very heavy um, drug route. The jungle is around it. So it does make you wonder whether the drug runner people have figured out some way to avoid leash or whether they all, you know, get it and die from it. Yeah, that that's that's true. The, uh, you know, in the book, um, The Lost City of the Monkey God, of course, 
Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was the president of Honduras at the time, is, is in the book. We, we met him. He went out to the site. It was very uh, interesting. He was very interested in it. He very, seemed like a very nice guy, young, handsome guy. And he's now in prison in Miami for smuggling cocaine, he and his brother. I mean, I, was, I guess I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was. I mean, I guess I'm a little naive, but, you know, he seemed like such a nice man. <laughs> well, we come back to serial killers. We've already established they can be charming. Patrick, do you have questions from the audience? I do, yeah. You have a very enthusiastic following online. It's oh, great. Good. Yeah, they have lots of good questions. Hi, is, is that it right there? Hello. That's it. Yes, that's Greetings, it. everyone. Okay, uh, the first one. Um, can Mr. Preston expand on the codex he used as inspiration while writing the codex? Uh, I have a hunch I know which one, but I'd love to hear his answer in as much detail as possible. Well, that, well that's interesting. The, um, you know the codices, the Mayan codices were these books that the Maya created um, that the, when the friars, the Spanish friars came, they thought these books were works of the devil and they burned them. I mean, it's one of the, it's like the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Thousands of these books were burned. And, but there are descriptions of them, and many of them were herbals, herbal, you know, that had cures and so forth. And I had this idea that there, you know, pharmaceutical companies are now looking to native, you know, indigenous people who, have, who live in the jungle who have certain cures that they, you know, herbal cures, that maybe there's some valuable drugs that might be identified this way. Like, for example, aspirin came from the bark of a tree. So I thought, oh, maybe one of these herbals uh, is worth a tremendous amount of money to a pharmaceutical company because it has all the plants of the jungle and what they cure, and it might be a wonderful, wonderfully valuable resource for the pharmaceutical companies to um, you know, use to find new drugs. So, so that, that's where that idea came from. Let's see. Um, here's a question. Would you please ask, Doug, what are the answers about Forrest Fenn we all seek? I wish I could give you the answers. <clears throat> um, well, I do not know where he buried his treasure. Uh, he never told me. Um, but it's been found. It was found right. by Jack Stoof. But... He, right before Forrest died, Jack brought him the treasure to show it to him. Forrest, you know, certified that he found it. But asked him, please don't tell anybody where it is, because that's a very special place to me. And so people are still out there fanatically looking for the, the spot. And there are a couple of photographs that Jack took of of the area with logs and so forth. And so people are out there scouring. They know it's in Wyoming. They know kind of where it might be. So there are people out there looking for that spot. But it's weird because um, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I was in my house on one lovely Sunday afternoon and a knock came at the door and I opened the door and here is this process server with a big fat envelope. And he says, I'm so sorry, but I'm serving you with this lawsuit. And I said, what's it about? And he said, well, it's about the Fen treasure, but you have, you're going to have to read it yourself. So I took this massive document. I was being sued for $5 million. And I looked at the, at the defendants, uh, Forrest Fen, Kelly Fen, you know, Shiloh Olds. These are all members of Forrest family and Taylor Swift. I thought, well, that can't be the Taylor Swift, that, you know, but it was. This guy suing me was, and me, I was, was absolutely nuts. And he thought that I and Taylor Swift and Forrest Fenn were in a conspiracy over this treasure. And that Taylor Swift had it. And she was going to, you know, using me as a conduit, you know, secretly give it back to Forrest and all this stuff. And it was 50 pages of absolute crazy nonsense. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I went to my lawyer and he said, well... You know, um, you're being sued for $5 million. You've got to respond to it. And I have to read this lawsuit. And I'm sorry, I have to charge you. It's going to cost you $1,500. And 
I'm like, God, that's ridiculous. But anyway, I said, well, go ahead. I don't want to, you know, end up losing by default. But Taylor Swift beat me to it. <laughs> Her lawyers got jumped right on it and got it dismissed and done. So I didn't have to pay. You no, know, you have to ask yourself, what is wrong with our legal system that it didn't get, you know, just knocked out at the very beginning? I mean, I think recently, this is the only political statement I will make this evening, that if you really think about it, it's the lawyers that are causing all the trouble. I used to be one. So <laughs> sorry. Did you want to comment on the lawyers? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. I came to this tonight and I read your your chapter on the Clovis Point pond. Uh, I, I found that very interesting. Did you ever see a collection, horse collection of the Clovis Point? Do you have any Clovis Point? Was he the source of that story for your book here? Yes, he was. He was the source of that story. I saw his collection, uh, a beautiful collection, which he sold for over a million dollars to a very... Uh, I think a guy who lives here in Arizona, but anyway, who collects, these are some of the most beautiful spear points ever made in, in North America. Um, but yeah, and I also saw the treasure. Um, in fact, I handled the treasure. In fact, I handled it many times because he had it in his walk-in vault in his house um, for 20 years before he buried it. Or he didn't bury it, sorry, he hid it. But... Um, and so he used to take me in and say, oh, I, he used to take stuff out and put new stuff in. And then for a while there, he had some, some kind of, I guess they're called bearer bonds or something. They were $100,000 bonds that just the piece of paper was the bond. If you had it in your hand, you owned it. It was like money. And he, he said that you had to take it to a Swiss bank and get it redeemed. And he said, this is how, this is, so that if someone finds this treasure, I'll know that they found it because they'll, they'll redeem these bearer bonds. But then he took those out because he said, oh, there won't be any banks by the time they find this treasure. And then he had a, a, a brick of $1,000 bills. I mean, I thought, this is like Monopoly money. He said, no, no, these are real. These are all real. Banks use them. And uh, he took that out because he was afraid they'd rot. And then he put gold in. He had these big gold nuggets from Alaska and gold pieces and $20 gold pieces and everything, but, and gems. and. Well, you haven't mentioned that he was actually, um, I had an art gallery, a beautiful art gallery. His home was part of it. Had a garden, which I absolutely love because I've been there and met him. Um, the first time I went to Santa Fe was with the Metropolitan Opera. He had a tour group um, where you went and, you know, the Santa Fe Opera has like five consecutive nights. And a big part of that was to spend a day with Forrest Finn at his gallery, which was a very famous art gallery. Yes. This is in the 80s. And um, as I said, now Jerry Peters actually has taken over, or was that woman, and then Jerry bought her out, I think. Yeah, Nidra Matucci Nidra, took over. Right. Then, um, yeah. But anyway, the reason that he had all this stuff in part was that he was a an, an art dealer. Um, That's right. He was a very smart, clever art dealer. Very. One yeah. of the most successful at that time. There used to be an art axis between Santa Fe and Scottsdale and La Jolla. And when I started the bookstore, we were over on Main Street right across from Molly's where every day when they cook the garlic, you know, I was going to do coffee marketing and all the rest of it, but I couldn't compete with the garlic that floated across the street from Molly. Mm -hmm. But there was a huge volume of tourists that came through and the crash in the nineties pretty much wiped out the art market here, maybe almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, main street is no longer a major art center like it was, but in Forest Day in the 70s and the 80s in Santa Fe, Lord, it was a license to coin money. It was, yeah, it was amazing, yeah. And there's still Canyon Road is still a big art, art, you know, market. There's and also the rail yard is now got. Yeah, the rail yard is, and then they yeah. built that enormous new contemporary art museum down there, completely changing the landscape in downtown Santa Fe. Yeah. Um, Patrick, anything else? Uh, yeah, let's see. Um, here's a question. Doug, did you ever look for the ledge of gold on your trip through Arizona? I was always hoping I might find it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was, I'm always on the lookout for something like that. I've, I've never found gold, um, but I have found other things that were kind of cool, you know, fossils and crystals and things like that. But, yeah, the ledge of gold, well, still out there somewhere.
we were talking yesterday about Coronado's, you know, expedition, and I was asking, you know, how how big was it? And you said it was like massive, right? It was huge. Yeah, it was fifteen hundred people. Wow. Yeah, they were going to settle New Mexico, and they didn't. They ended up going back to Mexico City. Probably. Anybody here have a question? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Quick question. Can you write the source of Monster of Florence prior to Brimstone? Uh, oh, wow. That, um, I think after Brimstone. Yeah. Maybe I mean I I'm I'm trying to think back into my dim the dim recesses of my fading memory, to I I know that I wrote Brimstone when. I think I might have written Brimstone afterwards. You know I think yeah. you did, and I'll tell you the reason. You I remember, but we were at lunch having this conversation. You were going to move to Italy to sort of reinvent yourself as a writer because you didn't think that the books that you'd published up to then had had that much traction, and so you were basically going off to Italy to, you know, start over That's with right. a detective yes. story. That's and then right. you found The Monster of Florence. But, um, yeah, as I said, Doug and I have been together a really long time. Yeah, Barbara is the, the, the most, the most, the, the greatest supporter of my career of anybody, anybody, really, oh. you know. That's because I love your work. Also, he's a charming guy, right? But, um <laughs> But I do think I do think he's a wonderful writer. And one of the reasons that I really like this book is it does show you that the fiction is, you know, inspired by real events, regardless of um, how the books come out. You know, these are real stories. I think um, the Dead Mountain one axis is the one I think that's the clearest at the moment because it's yeah. the most recent. And then, of course, Thunderhead, the novel Thunderhead right. that we wrote, was based on the cannibal story that I wrote for the New York. That's right. That was our best-selling paperback for like six years. If so, if you no, I'm serious. It's wonderful. It's Southwest, and you know, it um, it was just a great, a great story. Not all of their work has, in fact, been Pendergast. That's right. That one was that introduced. Um, well, let's see. It introduced. Nora Kelly, didn't it? No. I'm trying to think. You know, isn't it terrible? I mean, I can't remember. I've written too many books, but anyway. But, 38 yeah. books. Is this the 39th or the 38th? I, uh, I've i lost track. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I think your publisher made a claim somewhere in here. Let me vote. Aha. Uh -huh. Written, da, 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 the author. Well, no, they didn't actually tot it up, but I think it's 38. Hmm. Well, that that, that sounds about right. Right. Lincoln uh, Lincoln told me th recently that he had written that it was forty books, and I didn't verify that. But then he said, <laughs> "Oh, maybe I shouldn't tell you this story." But uh, oh, come on! He said, "I have gone out and rewarded myself for writing the, my fortieth book." Now he does do solo novels. He writes so, his own books, right? Yeah. So he might be a little ahead of me. I don't know, but. I said, what is it? And he said, I bought myself a very, very beautiful diamond. And I made it into a ring. And I wear it around the house. But it's too valuable to wear outside the house. Well, he never leaves the house, so I don't know why that would present a problem. But um, there's actually a list in here of Doug's nonfiction, starting with Dinosaurs in the Attic. Was that the book that you and Lincoln collaborated on when you worked at the Smithsonian? Well, yeah, that, actually, he edited Or the that Natural book. History yeah. Museum. Sorry, yeah, he, I misspoke. He was my editor. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I meant. Exactly. But isn't that where you met? Was that is. That, that is exactly where we met. He called me up, said, uh, identified himself as an editor at St. Martin's Press, and asked me to lunch at the Russian Tea Room, which of course when it was still the, the Russian Tea Room, it was one of the most beautiful restaurants in New York. And I, I uh, rushed to the Salvation Army to get a jacket so I could get into the Russian Tea Room. <laughs> right. And uh, I went in, and here's this kid who was younger than I was. I was, I was expecting to meet some very distinguished older editor, and he was just this kid. The Russian Tea Room, if you really want to know what it looks like, go to Durant's right now while it's decorated for Christmas down on Central, and that will give you the idea of the Russian Tea Room in New York. 
It's amazing. Um, anyway, let me finish. Dinosaurs in the Attic, and then Cities of Gold that we already talked about, and then Talking to the Ground, which we've already talked about. And then you wrote one called The Royal Road, which is the hardest, I think, to find, El Camino Real. Yeah, that one's that was that was uh, my wife uh, is a professional photographer, and so we documented the Royal Road, El Camino Real, from Mexico City to Santa Fe, which was opened by Don Juan de Oñate, who was one of the conquistadors mm-hmm. and who settled New Mexico, the first Spanish settlement of New Mexico. Yeah. Beautiful photographs yeah. in it. The University of New Mexico published it, if I recall. They did, yeah. I, I wrote the text. My wife took the photographs, and we had a third author, Jose Antonio Esquibel, who, who wrote a, a chapter on all the original Spanish families that came up with Oñate to New Mexico. Right. And then The Black Place with photographs by Walter Nelson. And then The Monster of Florence with Mario Spezzi, no longer with us. And then The Lost City of the Monkey God, which I imagine many of you have read. If you haven't read it, I really highly recommend it. It's just a terrific adventure story um, and was a number one bestseller. Um, but then yeah. you've been a number one bestseller. We've done that how many times together now? I think uh, We've thanks only to you. probably failed twice, I think. I think six, five times yeah. maybe for me. Yeah, five times. It's been great. Yeah. Patrick, anything else? Uh, yeah, there are a couple more. Um, here's a question about D.B. Cooper. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, someone named Treasure Warriors. He, he says, as a writer, do you feel that the writer of the uh, ha 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 book by D.B. Cooper had actually experienced it or imagined it. I don't know. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good question. question. That's, that's a, that's a tough question. It's uh yeah, I think imagined it. Yeah. I think it's yeah. imagined. But... And then another question is about um, related to, let me say I lost it there, but yeah. Uh, one more question. You, uh, you once went on a quest to find Estlan. Um, if, if this some this person has some information that she would like to get to you, is there a safe way to do that? Well, you know, she can go to the website. Okay. And uh, you can email me from the website. Gotcha. So okay. yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm not sure it's a she. He or she is doing yeah. some research on on that. Um, there are uh, there are some pretty good questions here. Okay. Um, Anybody else in the audience have one? Yeah. You wrote an article in Wired about a friend that you had buried some treasure. Went and found it. You ever expect to expand on that, write a book or stories about that? I found that very. Yeah. Well, that that story is in this book, and uh, but no, I never pursued that further. You know, it was kind of too painful, really. So. Probably as a journalist, I should have pursued it, but I just couldn't bear to do it. How about the Cabeza de Vaca book that we always talk about? Oh, that's, you know, that, you know, the story of Cabeza de Vaca, the, uh, she was a, uh, 600 Spaniards were shipwrecked on the coast of Florida. And nine years later, the four survivors from that shipwreck walked out of the wilderness and into Mexico, um, Actually, you know, practically Mexico City. They just they walked all the way from Florida to Mexico City, and they were led by a, a Spaniard named uh, Cabeza de Vaca. And it's an incredible story because then Cabeza de Vaca wrote this narrative of what of walking across. He was the first European to walk across the North American continent, and uh, he was enslaved by the Indians for a while, and then he became a shaman and a healer and and praying over Indians and curing them. And it's the most amazing story. And I, it's never, I did, there have been a couple of books written about it, but I never thought that it was, the story had been properly told in context or with any kind of really good research to, to understand who, where he went, what Indian groups he met, you know, what was going on. Um, and so I was going to maybe write a book about it, but then I read a book called, um, what was it called? So Strange a Land, I think it was called. And it was such a good book that I gave up the idea. I thought, I can't write a book better than this. So <laughs> I, I, I gave it up. So 
But you have a new nonfiction book um, under contract, which has a relevant setting. It does. I have a new nonfiction book. It's an Arizona story, a really unbelievably interesting Arizona story from the late 19th century. So. so that'll be great. Right. And final question from anybody? Yeah. Do you have favorite authors? I have a lot of favorite authors. I, um, you know, I um, I have too many to, to cite, but I'll just tell you what I'm reading right now, a book called The Wide, Wide Sea by Hampton Sides. Do you, do you know Hampton Sides? He writes books about history. This book has not been published yet. He's a friend of mine, and he gave me a copy of the advanced reading copy. So I'm reading that, and it is so good. He also wrote a book called Blood and Thunder about Geronimo and, and Kit Carson. Had, do you, have any of you read that? I just totally recommend that book. So so that's what I'm reading now. So speaking of advanced reading copies, I have one in my hand coming out in April that we're going to give away this evening. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.